after three trials, we have secured the convictions of leaders of both the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers for seditious conspiracy, specifically conspiring to oppose by force the lawful transfer of presidential power. Our work will continue. Good. See that it does, Mr. Attorney General. See that it does. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on flagship station KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. And we've got so much to cover today, I can't even list the other affiliates, but they're all excellent. You should check them out. We love them. Blanketing Planet Earth, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Yes, we have got a lot to get to today, including, if time, that uh, Proud Boys sedition verdict you heard Attorney General Merrick Garland mentioned there at the top yes. and what it means for Donald Trump. Hi, Desi Doyne. Hi. I'm glad that we spoke with Marcy Wheeler yesterday about that. About exactly that. Yep. Yes. Uh, another uh, also another appalling scandal for Clarence Thomas, hands down the most corrupt U.S. Supreme Court justice in American history. Uh, and as Donald Trump would say, it's not even close. <laughs> Uh, and if uh, if time allows, uh, we'll get to all of that in some more detail. But first, I, it, it, uh, there's some stuff that you are unlikely to hear about elsewhere that I want to make sure we're able to hit today. We actually had an election day this week. Did you know that, Desi Doyen? I did not until you told me. Well, that's right. I did not either until I found out. Uh, there were some very small local races, but I actually think we can learn quite a bit from them today, whether Republicans learn anything from them. Well, that is a separate matter. Let's start here. It was what uh, Nebraska Democrats are describing as a landslide victory for their team on Tuesday in local elections in the Nebraska state capital of Lincoln, where the results are in and Lancaster County Democrats won a landslide victory in Lincoln City elections. Incumbent Mayor Larion, and, and pardon me if I'm getting the name wrong, uh, Larion Gaylor Baird, supported by the Democrats, defeated former state senator Suzanne Geist, who was supported by Republicans in what political prognosticators had suggested would be a close election. It was not a close election. Baird defeated Geist by nearly 10 points, according to the computer-reported results this week. Now, these are, uh, in theory, uh, the mayor, mayor election in, uh, in uh, Lincoln is a nonpartisan affair, but each of the candidates, one is supported by the Democrats, one is supported by the Republicans. If Republicans have been continuing to expect pushback against Democrats in elections with Joe Biden's continuing control of the White House and his perceived unpopularity, well, 
their expectations continue to fail them. In other words, seems. the red wave continues to not show up. Correct. Uh, quote, it's overwhelming. It's wonderful, said Gaylor Baird after uh, Geist had conceded, thanking her supporters and describing the win as, quote, a victory for Lincoln for our positive vision of what we're trying to build for Lincoln. According to the Nebraska Democratic Party, two Geist supporters and their families funded most of the ads in the GOP's losing bid. Publisher Thomas Peed and U.S. Senator Pete Ricketts. Peed and Ricketts, who say they uh, spent approximately $1.6 million on a blizzard of what the Nebraska Democrats describe as dishonest and negative ads that trashed Lincoln's good reputation. At the end of the day, they said, the people still rule. It's our city. The Geist television, digital and mailer advertisements depicted Nebraska's capital city as a criminal hellhole. Sound familiar? And as a failed city. According to the Democrats, the uh, GOP ads were over the top, simply not credible, did not match the reality that most Lincoln residents experience. Democrats accuse Geist of failing to, quote, respect the voters by trashing Lincoln, calling this town a dystopian crime hellscape, alienating the proud residents of our successful city. It's not a good campaign tactic to say that Lincoln sucks. <laughs> But they keep trying it. Republicans continue to try it. They do. This is the this is what they're <laughs> they did it in 2022. They're doing it now. The, the cities are all a disaster. We must. And then it doesn't work out for them. And yet they keep doing it. Geist had voted with the most extreme members of her party in the state legislature as a state senator. She voted for abortion bans, a permitless conceal carry law. Uh, she voted against LGBTQ rights and for a middle class tax increase. All stuff that Republicans have been and apparently continue to run on nationally. And to continually, you know, disappointing results for those bothering to actually dig down and pay attention to what's going on here rather than just report what Republicans are saying in their campaigns and on Fox News. It's fine to report what they're uh, what they're saying, but it's also good to note that the voters are rejecting it. In their statement, the Nebraska Democratic Party cited what they described as the mayor's positive message to voters and attempts to make Lincoln welcoming for all, noting, quote, Lincoln voters soundly rejected the MAGA Republicans and millions dumped into the races by the Peed and Ricketts family. Nebraskans do not want our elections bought by millionaires, nor do they want constant lies told by the Republican Party. Local Democrats in Lincoln, also in Lincoln City, uh, their council, city council elections, uh, also did well. They continue to hold a commanding six to one majority there. We will see what all of this means for 2024. But if you continue to pay attention to, you know, actual data, a 10 point win is a big win uh, versus spin. Uh, you know, as we tried to do in 2022 in the lead up to last year's midterms, when Republicans were claiming that red wave was coming, the media played along with it, even though that red wave never ca uh, came. Well, we are beginning to see, at least for now, maybe uh, 
some similar signs in advance of next year's presidential election. And if you look close enough, you also see that it's not just in left-leaning urban areas, albeit in red states like Lincoln, Nebraska. As uh, Bridge, Michigan reports this week, voters in deeply conservative Adams Township on Tuesday night rejected elections clerk Stephanie Scott, ousting the Republican official who questioned the accuracy of her own voting machines in a dispute that prompted a state police investigation. Unofficial results from Hillsdale County show that Scott lost her recall election to an independent challenger by the name of Susie Roberts by a nearly two-to-one margin. I'd say that's a pretty healthy margin. Not not for uh, Scott. Gail McClanahan, a 75-year-old retiree who organized a petition drive to force these uh, this recall election, called the results a win for local voters who were frustrated by the two-year saga that began in 2021 when the state stripped Scott of her ability to administer elections. As McClanahan told Bridge, Michigan, quote, We're just so happy that Adams Township believed us. We said there was no election fraud here. She added that Roberts won in part because of her call to, quote, make Adams Township boring again. (laughs) That's a good tag. Adams Township voters also chose to recall Supervisor Mark Nichols, a Scott ally who had joined her to vote against spending about $5,000 needed to replace local voting equipment that had been confiscated by state police as part of their probe into apparent tampering with the tabulation equipment by Scott and friends after the 2020 presidential election. Here's what happened. Back in 2021, Scott refused to conduct routine maintenance on the township's voting system in an apparent attempt to preserve data that she suspected could prove fraud uh, that she believes somehow cost former uh, President Donald Trump the 2020 election in Michigan. Sounds like a very similar story to that of Tina Peters, the Mesa County clerk in Colorado. Colorado, right. Uh, But in Michigan, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson's office, just like in Colorado, uh, stripped Scott of her election duties thereafter and requested that state police probe the uh, this uh, situation where the local ballot tabulator actually went missing entirely. And Scott was thought to have it and refused to turn it over to state officials. State police referred the case to the attorney, state attorney general, Dana Nessel, for possible criminal charges in June of 2022. But then state police investigated again in September after Scott was accused of sharing, quote, identifying information about local voters with a third party. So as we have seen in uh, battleground state after battleground state, Republicans have committed unlawful acts, including election fraud, in order to unsuccessfully find evidence of election fraud. Funny how that works. Committing election fraud to prove that there's election fraud going on. Corrupting the voting systems in in state after state in the bargain as part of a scheme that we now know was actually hatched 
in the White House, in the Oval Office, during that crazy meeting that was held by Donald Trump with folks like Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows, his chief of staff, Michael Flynn, his disgraced former national security advisor and others back on December 18 of 2020. That's where these schemes were hatched. And they have been playing out all across the country ever since. And I sure hope that Jack Smith, special counsel or someone at the DOJ, is looking into this multi-state conspiracy because right now they do not seem to be, as far as we can best tell, according to letters sent to and from the FBI by our friends at Free Speech for People, as we discussed on this program uh, a week or two ago with Free Speech for People's senior elections advisor, Susan Greenhall. You can download that episode and that interview, of course, for free at bradblog.com. Scott, uh, we should note, up in Michigan, uh, for her part, has denied any wrongdoing and said last month in a public forum that she was simply asking questions about local voter roll discrepancies and trying to follow federal law for election data preservation. The dispute made her a national hero to election deniers, including the former Overstock.com CEO Patrick Byrne, who, along with betting magnate Mike Lindell, funded no small part of these failed MAGA schemes, these attacks on voting and on our voting systems after the 2020 election. He defended Adams Township by Zoom in a uh, town hall last month, calling Scott a, quote, brave American, fighting a, quote, coup by corruption, whatever the hell that means. McClanahan, uh, who, who was responsible for this recall election, she's a lifelong Adams Township resident. She said that local voters were tired of the drama. Oh, do I feel you, Adams Township. Uh, Quote, everything was so cool and nice for years, and then all this ruckus. She said, local meetings got rowdy. They got bad. We want it back nice again, she said. For the record, nice apparently includes Donald Trump's victory in Adams Township, where he won 76% of the vote in 2020 in one of the state's most conservative counties. The Trump-Pence ticket actually won Hillside County by 54 points back in 2020. That's the election result that Scott apparently believed must be evidence somehow of Democrats stealing the state's presidential election for Joe Biden. Well, logic isn't really their strong suit. In their uh, ill-considered quest, I, I, I think what they've done is sort of box themselves in these days to continuing to cling to wildly ridiculous and unpopular things like opposing abortion rights, opposing gun safety, false claims about election fraud, etc. Instead of moderating their position to be more in line with what Americans actually want from their government, Republicans are just continuing to make it harder for voters to vote at all. That seems to be their solution. Or at least make it harder for uh, voters to win on popular ballot initiatives, on on things that they may care about, even in so-called red states where Republicans have made it all but impossible now for non-Republicans 
to move forward with statewide policies thanks to gerrymandered legislatures. In many of these states, the only way for uh, you know, non-Republicans or just the only way for the people, really, to express themselves uh, is through these ballot initiatives. Well, uh, that's exactly why Republicans are trying to prevent these ballot initiatives from being able to happen at all now. As the New York Times reported last week, voters pushed back decisively after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year. Approving ballot measures that established or upheld abortion rights in all six states where such initiatives appeared. Now, with abortion rights groups pushing for similar citizen-led ballot initiatives in at least six other states, Republican-controlled legislatures and groups who oppose reproductive freedoms are now trying to make it harder to pass these measures or even to get them on the ballot at all. The biggest and most immediate fight is now in Ohio, where a coalition of abortion rights groups is collecting signatures to place a constitutional amendment on the ballot in November that would prohibit the state from banning abortion before a fetus becomes viable outside of the womb at about 24 weeks of pregnancy, exactly what Roe v. Wade had protected. That would essentially establish on the state level what Roe had done nationwide for five decades until our corrupted activist anti-freedom U.S. Supreme Court stripped Americans of those constitutional rights. Organizers were confident that the measure would reach the simple majority needed for passage in Ohio, given the polls show that most Ohioans, just like most Americans, support legalized abortion and disapprove of the overturning of Roe. So what are Republican opponents of democracy now doing about it? Well, in Ohio, Republicans in the state legislature are now advancing a ballot amendment of their own to raise the percentage of votes required to pass future such measures to a 60% supermajority instead of just a simple 50% majority. Ironically, the measure uh, that they're trying to move forward, which has already passed the GOP-dominated and gerrymandered Ohio State Senate, well, their bill would only require... 50% support from voters in order to be adopted. Pretty neat (laughs) trick, right? Yep. The Republican measure would go before voters. (laughs) So the the, uh, proponents of reproductive freedoms want to get their initiative on the ballot this November. So what are the Republicans doing? Well, they're putting up this measure to go forward in a special election. This August. Oh, so it can precede the opportunity. Correct. And only has to pass with 50% vote. So uh, that additional provision of this special election will cost state taxpayers an estimated $20 million. Brought Mm. to you by the party of fiscal responsibility, right? So they're hoping for a low turnout. They're hoping for uh, this to happen before the uh, abortion uh, uh, supporters are able to get their measure on the ballot, though the measure is running into at least some opposition this week, more than more than expected anyway, in the Ohio House, it seems. Uh, it, the measure did manage to pass out of one House committee on Wednesday, but with all Democrats and one Republican voting against it. 
in a closer vote than Republicans had uh, had hoped for. Another committee in the House in Ohio is considering the measure, but canceled their hearing this week on it for some reason. Just four months ago, Republicans in the state legislature led passage of a law to do away with most August elections because they cost taxpayers so much. And as Republican Secretary of State Frank LaRose argued at the time, uh, they had, quote, embarrassingly low turnout. But now, just four months later, LaRose supports the August election in order to raise the threshold for ballot (laughs) measures, even though four months ago he said that August elections tend to mean, quote, just a handful of voters make make big decisions, adding in his written testimony at the time, quote, this isn't how democracy is supposed to work. Well, you know, Republican policies and Republican principles are really just situational. What do you need? When do you need it? Correct. Say whatever you need to say. Yes, it's disgusting. Uh, It's just disgustingly hypocritical. And that is Republican Secretary of State Frank Frank LaRose. He completely flip-flopped on his own position from just four months ago in hopes of now robbing Ohioans of their freedom. The... uh, Republican amendment would also add new requirements to get proposed amendments on the ballot by citizens. Proposed proponents would have to collect signatures from at least 5% of the residents in all 88 counties in the state. That's up from the current 44% uh, 44 counties that they have to collect uh, signatures from, which those who, you know, work to gather signatures for these initiatives, it's going to make it exponentially more difficult and expensive for them to do so. The measure would also do away with so-called curing period, which allows proponents a week to collect additional signatures to make up for any that uh, were disqualified. Republicans in Ohio have said openly that their effort to make ballot amendments harder to pass are indeed aimed at blocking abortion rights. I don't know how they could hide it at this point. Republican-led legislatures in five other states are also leading similar efforts to block citizen-led measures. You know, we hate to have all of this self-governance by we the people, apparently. The North Dakota legislature this month approved a bill boosting the signature requirement for proposed constitutional amendments and requiring them to win approval in both primary and general elections. And in Arkansas, after even after voters there specifically soundly rejected a constitutional amendment that was proposed by the legislature to stiffen the requirements to get measures on the ballot, voters rejected that. So what did the legislature do? They simply passed a new law, new requirements by themselves as uh, a new state law. Uh, Governor, Republican Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders immediately signed that law because, you know, the hell to what with to what voters actually want. Right, Sarah? Republicans were said to have been surprised by how forcefully voters turned out to reject anti-abortion laws last year, even in red states. In Kansas, the Republican-controlled legislature, you'll recall, put forward a ballot initiative that would have reversed a 2019 state Supreme Court finding that uh, there is a right to abortion in the state constitution. 
Uh, the measure was then placed on the ballot in the August primary last year when turnout is again typically low, but abortion right group, rights groups mobilized and they defeated it. In November, voters defeated a similar measure in Kentucky, along with an anti-abortion law in Montana. At the same time, they approved measures to recognize the constitutional right to abortion in Vermont, California, and Michigan. The decision to raise the threshold to 60% in Ohio was almost certainly not an arbitrary choice. What they have found in Michigan, Kentucky, and Kansas was that the vote for abortion rights was between 52 and 59%. So if you put it just out of reach at 60%, well then you can make sure democracy does not happen. Quote, when they're raising the passage threshold to 60 or 65 percent, it's often just a percent or a couple of points above what has been needed to pass initiatives in the past. That, according to Chris Melody Fields Figueredo, the executive director of the Ballot Initiative Strategy Center, uh, who explained that to the New York Times, she told us the very same thing on this program way back in January Yep. Uh, when she joined us here. Glad the Times is catching up. <laughs> anyway, the uh, this is um, one of the core beliefs I was taught in being a Republican, said State Senator Brian King in Arkansas, is that we should make it easier for citizens to get things on the ballot and challenge the what the government does. He said the new law in that state, in Arkansas, simply crossed the line. In my old home state of Missouri, sadly, which used to be a battleground state until I moved out, I blame myself, <laughs> the Republican legislature there, they're on the verge of putting a constitutional amendment on the ballot this November, raising the approval threshold for proposed amendments to 60 percent from 50 percent as well. Voters, however, would be unlikely to even know that that measure would do that. The proposal was passed by the House. It was sent to the state Senate. It specifies that it must be described on the ballot only as a measure to require voters to be properly registered U.S. citizens and Missouri residents. So the ballot language itself that the Missouri Republican legislature is putting forth is deceptive? Very it's 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 a it's a lie. I mean, calling it deceptive would be a very nice okay. way to put it. We'll call it a lie. It, They're lying to the voters. This is not about making sure that you know voters are properly registered U.S. citizens and Missouri residents. This is specifically meant to take their rights away. I hope to let folks in Missouri know what is actually happening and how they are being lied to and screwed over by the uh, Republicans who run the state at this point. By the way, the state constitution already requires that voters be properly registered U.S. citizens and Missouri residents. So uh, they're so cowardly and, and so corrupt and so power hungry that not only are they going to take power away from voters, they're going to trick them into doing it to themselves. You know, some days I wish we were not on FCC radio. <laughs> this is one of those days. Uh, anyway, uh, one more uh, democracy related story before we get to a break today, or, or perhaps one more anti-democracy, pro-hypocrisy story. This one from the great state of 
Well, the once great state of Florida, where Republicans there as well are running afraid of their own voters, it seems. The Republicans-led state legislature has been passing all sorts of what dopey governor and GOP presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis likes to describe as anti-woke measures in hopes of boosting his own uh, chances of winning the Republican presidential nomination. But those measures restricting abortion to six weeks before many women even know they're pregnant, banning books from libraries, restricting free speech by teachers in schools with anti-LGBTQ mandates. These are proving to not be very popular for voters at the polls. So, um, you know, what do we do about it? Well, as DeSantis gets closer to officially announcing his candidacy for the uh, presidential nomination on the Republican side, probably next month, once the legislative session ends later this month, as TPM's Nicole LaFond described it, his Republican friends in the state house gave him one final treat. The legislature passed several sweeping new restrictions on voting rights and a change to election law to allow him to run for president while remaining governor. The way state law currently stands, DeSantis would have to resign as governor in order to run for a different office under state law. But that will now likely uh, that will change uh, with this new law. And that provision of the law will likely get the most attention, I suspect, uh, once it's signed by DeSantis. But on top of changing the resign to run provision of state law, Republicans also put through a whole bunch of brand new restrictions on voting, specifically to make it harder uh, for minority voters to be able to register to vote at all. Florida lawmakers passed an array of new restrictions on groups that register voters, according to CNN, an action that voting rights experts say would make it harder for people of color in the state to register and participate at all in future elections. I sure hope that all of these stories are, are painting a picture for you about what is going on in your country, about what is going on with the Republican Party and their uh, apparent need to have to, you know, prevent democracy from happening at all. The uh, measures in Florida are part of a sweeping 96-page bill that now awaits DeSantis's signature. In addition to letting Ron run for president while serving as governor, SB 7050 adds a disclaimer to voter registration ID cards uh, almost certainly to discourage people from actually voting. It lets recipients know that having the card does not necessarily mean they're eligible to vote legally in the state. Now, currently, when you register to vote in Florida, the state is supposed to check and approve your eligibility and send you back a voter registration card in return, serving as proof that you're legally registered to vote. But last year, DeSantis, as you may recall, created a so-called election fraud state police force to uh, essentially make widespread voter fraud allegations, make it seem like this was a problem in the state. In reality, the election crimes force arrested about 20 people, mostly people of color, for alleged fraud 
people with past felony convictions who did not even know they were not allowed to legally vote, especially since they received a voter registration card from the state telling them they were legally allowed to vote. Now, DeSantis did not bother to use that state police force to round up all of the white Republicans who voted twice in the state. That was left to be quietly handled by local law enforcement, unlike the black people who were rounded up at gunpoint on camera and arrested years after uh, what they thought had been a legal vote. Now, under the proposed changes to the law in Florida, the state will now include disclaimer language, uh, noting that the cards are not legal verification of eligibility. Also, several provisions focus on third-party voter registration groups, all in an effort to chill actual democracy. Among them, uh, one provision shortens from uh, 14 days to just 10 days the amount of time that groups have to turn in any registration forms they collect. Groups also must register with the state each and every general election cycle. That's a change from the current one-time registration requirement. The bill makes it illegal for people convicted of certain felonies and for non-citizens, including those who have permanent legal residency in the U.S., to collect or handle voter registration applications at all. So previously, while you couldn't vote as a non-citizen, nothing prevented you from, you know, helping in a voter registration drive, for yeah. example. Organizations, out your community. organizations now face fines up to $50,000 for each ineligible person involved in collecting applications. Altogether, groups could be fined as much as $250,000 in total for violations each calendar year. The previous maximum fine, $1,000 just two years ago. Now it's $250,000. That's going to scare off a lot of people, said an ACLU spokesperson. The steep fines are needed to, quote, make, quote, pe make people think twice before violating the rules. That, according to the Republican chair of the Senate Elections Committee in Florida, who pushed this bill through. Dan Smith, Daniel Smith, a uh, University of Florida political scientist, and expert on voting, who we have not had on this show in ages, but I guess we need to do it again. <laughs> he said that these restrictions would have a disproportionate impact on non-white Floridians. In 2021, his research shows black and Latino voters were five times more likely than white residents in the state to register through third-party groups. Five times. But this is just to, uh, as Senator Burgess who sponsored this. This is just to, quote, make it harder for bad actors to do bad things. Is it really, Senator? Professor Smith told CNN, quote, it is likely that the new legislation will effectively stifle voter registration efforts by nonpartisan groups in Florida. The penalties have become too high. The cost too great for groups on the ground doing the hard work of registering the thousands of Floridians eligible to vote in the state. This is the third year in a row now that Florida, uh, Florida lawmakers have made it harder for certain voters to vote in the Sunshine State. Year after year after year, they keep passing these laws to make it harder to vote. Ebony Johnson, who works with two organizations focused mostly on African-American families, 
uh, in South Florida, uh, said that she will not stop registering Floridians no matter the hurdles. We come across barriers all the time, she said. We just learn to jump over them. Thank you for your service, Ebony. Keep jumping those barriers. We are all counting on you. All right, we got to jump to a break, and we will come back with some, some fresh news on GOP corruption and failure and, yes, accountability for the racist Proud Boys, the corrupt Clarence Thomas, and our more pathetic-than-ever former president. Plus, Des Doyen and the Green News Report, Yay. all impossibly still ahead on today's <laughs> broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. All right, uh, each of these stories, frankly, deserves far more time than we can give to it today, I'm afraid. But uh, since they're all going to be you know, covered fairly well elsewhere, I think, I'll take some comfort in uh, giving them shorter shrift than they deserve here today. <laughs> As noted at the top of the show, a jury on Thursday convicted four members of the racist far-right Proud Boys militia group, including its former leader, Enrique Tarrio, of seditious conspiracy, finding they plotted to attack the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, in a failed bid to block Congress from certifying President Joe Biden's election victory. They argued that they did so at the direction of then-President Donald J. Trump. The convictions, after a trial lasting nearly four months in federal court in Washington, D.C., handed another victory to the U.S. Justice Department as it pursues criminal charges against more than 1,000 people arising from the Capitol insurrection by Trump's supporters. Several members of another far-right militia group, the Oath Keepers, were also convicted of sedition earlier uh, in earlier trials. The 12-member jury deliberate, deliberated about a week, also found these pathetic people guilty of other felonies, including obstructing an official proceeding, a charge that, like seditious conspiracy, can carry up to 20 years in prison, and they were convicted of conspiring to impede Congress from performing its duties. Uh, both of those charges uh, are what are, are, are key, actually, uh, to Special Counsel Jack Smith's investigation of Donald Trump, as we discussed with Marcy Wheeler on yesterday's broadcast, because uh, she believes that those are charges that are likely to be brought against Trump in the months ahead. Uh, they also faced, it, faced obstructing law enforcement during a civil disorder. We're found guilty of that as well. By the way, Tario, the group's leader, just like Donald Trump, was not even at the Capitol on January 6th. He was still found guilty of those very serious crimes. Again, Jack Smith is watching all of that very, very closely. Oh, I bet he is. 
Five people, including a police officer, died during or shortly after the riot, the Donald Trump-led insurrection. More than 140 police officers were seriously injured by Trump's MAGA mob that day. Speaking of the disgraced, twice impeached, already indicted once with more on the way, former president. Uh, last week, we noted that his pal, former congressman and now head of his dumb social media outlet, uh, uh, Congressman Devin Nunes had almost all of his attempted defamation lawsuits that he had filed against media outlets tossed by a federal judge after he had sued for claiming that he uh, had employed undocumented workers at his family farm. As it turns out, the judge determined that, yeah, he did employ undocumented workers on his family farm, and so uh, the, the suits were dismissed. And on Wednesday night now, we have this. A New York judge has tossed out Donald Trump's lawsuit against the New York Times and ordered the former president to pay all attorney fees, <laughs> legal expenses, and associated costs for the Times. So loser Trump loses again? Well, he loses twice. He loses the suit and he loses money because now he's got to actually pay the New York Times. Trump filed the suit in 2021, alleging the paper and three and three of its reporters and his own niece, Mary Trump, had engaged in, quote, an insidious plot to obtain his private records for a Pulitzer Prize winning story about his tax issues. While the court tossed out Trump's claims against the newspapers and its reporters, the claims against the ex-president's niece, Mary, have yet to be ruled upon. Trump's claims against the defendants, quote, fail as a matter of constitutional law, said New York Supreme Court Justice Robert Reed in his ruling, deeming the paper's news gathering as being, quote, at the very core of protected First Amendment activity. Of course, that's why Donald Trump opposes them. <laughs> of course. Uh, no matter what you hear from Republicans about how much they really give a damn about free speech and the First Amendment, they do not. So in case you're keeping score at home at this point, uh, let's see, Fox News had to pay about $757 million after being sued by the uh, Dominion Voting Systems Company for uh, uh, defamation because the First Amendment does not allow you to knowingly lie with malice against a private company like Dominion. In the case of Devin Nunes and Donald Trump and their defamation lawsuits, well, they lost their suits against media outlets, uh, which have now all almost entirely been tossed because, well, they didn't lie about Devin Nunes or Donald Trump. And now anti-free press Donald Trump will have to give money to The New York Times, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> After uh, her uncle initially filed his lawsuit against her in September of 2021, Mary Trump told the Daily Beast, quote, I think he is a effing loser and he's going to throw anything against the wall that he can. It's desperation. The walls are closing in and he is throwing anything against the wall that will stick. Well, yet again, this one did not stick. So uh, one more. Do I have time? Oh, OK, one more. A few weeks ago, the uh, investigative journalists at ProPublica, as we have discussed, uh, dropped their first bombshell, finding that 
wildly corrupt U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas had received hundreds of thousands of dollars in undisclosed luxury vacations from a GOP mega-donor by the name of Harlan Crow. A week or so later, ProPublica revealed their second bombshell. As it turns out, Crow had actually purchased Thomas's mother's home from him went about making tens of thousands of dollars in home renovation improvements to the property, which she continues to live in to this day, a house that is owned by the GOP mega donor Harlan Crow, living there rent free to this day. And then, well, last night, the third so far bombshell from ProPublica. In 2008, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas decided to send his teenage grandnephew to Hidden Lake Academy, a private boarding school in the foothills of northern Georgia. The boy, Mark Martin, had lived with the justice and his wife for the past decade in D.C. after Thomas had taken legal custody of Martin when he was six years old. And uh, Thomas recently told an interviewer that he was, quote, raising him as a son. Tuition at this boarding school ran more than $6,000 a month, but Thomas did not pay for the bill. A bank statement from the school from July 2009 buried in unrelated court filings shows the source of Martin's tuition payment for that month was the company of billionaire real estate magnate, magnate Harlan Crow. According to a former administrator at the school, Crow paid Martin's tuition the entire time he was there, which was about a year at $6,000 a month, which is $6,000 a month that this Republican mega donor was essentially putting into the pockets of a U.S. Supreme Court justice. Harlan picked up the tab, said Christopher Grimwood, a, uh, an administrator at the school who got to know both Crow and the Thomases and had access to school financial information. Before and after his time at Hidden Lake, Martin attended a second boarding school, the Randolph-Macon Academy in Virginia. Harlan said he was paying for the tuition at Randolph-Macon Academy as well, said Grimwood. Now, the Thomases did not uh, report any of this tuition payment from Crow on his annual financial disclosures. So we're only just learning about this now. Thomas did not respond to questions from ProPublica, but in response to previous ProPublica reporting on gifts of luxury tr uh, travel, Thomas had said that the Crows, quote, are among our dearest friends, unquote, and that he understood he did not have to disclose trips with, you know, personal friends, even though they were paid for to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars. His excuse for not reporting uh, Crow buying his mom's house from him or paying for his nephew some $5,000 each month to go to school for several years. Well, so far, Clarence hasn't said a word about it, even as Crow sent a list of uh, who was sent a list of detailed questions by ProPublica responded with a statement that did not dispute any of the facts presented in the story. Well, now we have confirmation because after that story was published, Mark Paoletta, a longtime friend of Clarence Thomas, who has served as a lawyer to his far right activist wife, 
Ginny Thomas, released a statement confirming that, yes, Crow paid for Martin's tuition at both Randolph-Macon Academy and at Hidden Lake, saying that Crow paid for one year at each of the schools. He did not give a total amount, but based on the tuition rates at the time at both schools, the two years would amount to roughly $100,000. So I'm pretty sure we are now well over a million dollars in various undisclosed gifts from this GOP mega donor who had business, also as ProPublica showed, who had business before the court, more than $100 million in various ways, uh, uh, gifts, purchasing of, of, of property, tuition for his grandnephew who was raised as a son, given to the nation's most corrupt ever, by far, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. And none of this was disclosed as required by law. And I also wonder whether that would be considered undeclared income for income tax purposes. I don't know. That would be interesting to find out. So, yes, uh, in the meantime, Republicans in the U.S. Congress, they are all totally fine with this, apparently. They were uh, this week in a hearing about the Supreme Court and reform to the court. They were out there defending Clarence Thomas, defending all of this behavior, claiming that it was Democrats who were, uh, you know, playing some sort of a dirty trick on Clarence Thomas. This is a dirty trick that Clarence Thomas played on himself for decades as a Supreme Court justice. It's only now that we are finally hearing about some of these things, thanks to these reporters, Josh Kaplan, Justin Elliott, Alex Mirjeski at ProPublica, uh, thanks to their hard work in exposing Clarence Thomas's corruption. Yeah, no kidding. It's 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 amazing. Uh, but of course, the Republicans are defending him because right now, if he were to step down, he would be replaced by a Democratic president. And it should be noted that those Republicans in Congress or are at least as corrupt as Clarence Thomas, their hero. Green News Report is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. And as if all of that wasn't enough for you today, I mean, how much do you, how much do you want for your money on this uh, broadcast? Anyway, as if all of that wasn't enough, let's get to it. Our latest Green News Report. If this is happening in April, what's it going to be like in June? Spain broils in unprecedented heat wave while Italy's rivers dry up. EU adopts what's being described as the biggest climate protection law of all time, 
Plus, New York officially becomes the first state to ban natural gas in newly constructed buildings. I knew it. I knew they were coming for my gas stoves. All of those stories and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. You can have my gas stove when you pry it from my cold, dead hand. See? Fox News was right again. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I think you have some apologies to make here. How so? Well, with the news out of New York, it's clear that Fox was right. They're all coming to ban our stoves. <laughs> yes, how dare you make me spend less on energy? It's horrible. What other troubling news do you have for us today, Des? Well, first, in Europe, officials are warning of a hot and dry summer ahead after an unusually dry and warm winter with snowpack in the Alps, only about 25% of normal. Italy's largest river, the Po, is already as low as it was at the height of last summer, impacting tourism and shipping. Because of low river flows, Seawater is intruding further upriver, endangering crops and drinking water supplies. But officials say coastal barriers to prevent saltwater intrusion are still years away from completion. Spain just had its hottest April on record and is suffering under an intense summer-like heat wave that has triggered an unusually early wildfire season on top of a deepening five-year drought Mm -hmm. that has depleted reservoirs and decimated crops. With water reserves at 50% of capacity nationally, government officials have requested emergency relief from the European Commission's Agriculture Relief Fund. In an interview with TRT World News, U.S. climate scientist Peter Kalman noted extreme heat events are becoming more frequent, and he warned that unless governments move faster to cut their emissions, the combination of intense heat and drought will get worse everywhere. The heat will become much more extreme. I think this is still the just the barest beginnings of what we're going to be experiencing in the next few years and, and then even in the next few decades. Hmm. Maybe we should burn less natural gas. The United Nations warned this week that the return of the warming El Nino climate pattern this summer will likely shatter recent heat records. And they called on governments around the world to get ready for more extreme weather. A recent report estimated that last year's heat waves in Europe likely killed more than 20,000 people. But Europe is taking action. The European Union just finalized a major climate law that has been described as the biggest climate protection law of all time. It puts the EU on track to cut its emissions nearly in half by 2030. It includes a just transition fund to shield vulnerable households from rising energy prices. And it contains the world's first carbon border tax. Beginning in 2026, the carbon border tax will be levied on imports of emissions intensive products like steel and fertilizers to ensure that as European companies decarbonize, they won't be undercut by imports from countries with lax emissions rules. Smart. And manufacturers can't move production overseas to evade the EU's new emissions standards. Also smart. Here in the U.S., General Motors announced it is discontinuing production of its very popular, affordable, all-electric Chevy Bolt, despite its record sales. GM will instead offer what it says will be new, affordable midsize EV models. Why would they do that? Industry experts say it's about profits. 
pickups and SUVs have higher profit margins. The UN International Energy Agency this week reports that electric car sales surged by 55% last year. The IEA projects that one in five cars sold in 2023 will be electric. A new record. Cool. China, which leads global battery production, dominated the global market with 60% of electric car sales in 2022. And finally, New York this week became the first state in the nation to ban natural gas and other polluting fossil fuels in most new building construction, starting in 2026. The new law phases out gas-burning stoves, furnaces, and propane heating. It exempts large commercial and industrial buildings like hospitals and restaurants and does not apply to existing residences. Fossil fuel interests are expected to sue to stop the new emission standards, and it's important because buildings account for one-third of New York's climate warming emissions, so phasing out polluting natural gas is necessary because methane gas is a more potent climate warming gas than carbon dioxide, and electrifying buildings will have a dramatic and positive health impact for New Yorkers. Wait, this is only for new buildings? Yes. So I can keep my gas stove? Exactly. I think I owe someone an apology. For much more on all of those stories and the ones we didn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. No, they're not coming for your gas stoves. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. I'm sorry. So sorry. <laughs> that yep. I okay. All right. Well, you know what? I'm sorry, not sorry. We got to get out of here. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or you just need to hear it again, because who can keep up with it all? You can download it anytime for free at brandblog.com. Thanks to those of you who support our work. Help us continue to do it day after day here on the Bradcast by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me an email if you like. Love to hear from you. I'm Bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons, you will find me at the Bradblog. Till we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. I'm sorry. So sorry. So sorry. Please accept. My apology, but love is blind.